You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season 12, episode 13. Before we get started, I wanted to remind you that early bird tickets are now available to the Breath in the Clay Creative Arts Gathering, taking place in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, March 22nd through 24th. Visit thebreathintheclay.com to learn more. How we show up in the world takes on a wide variety of expression. Our public lives reflect the many roles we play in society and the varying facets of personality traits we form to cope with different situations. From parent to coworker, artist or spiritual practitioner, from a social media persona to a dinner guest with friends, even bygone roles remaining with us from childhood, our sense of identity moves through a myriad of shapes and forms. But what happens when these different aspects of our lives no longer communicate? Or when we are expected to abide by a former version of ourselves that no longer reflects our current view of the world? Joining me for this conversation is licensed mental health therapist, Jay Stringer. Jay's academic background includes a master's degree in counseling psychology from the renowned Seattle School of Theology and Psychology as well as he has received specialized training under Dr. Dan Allender while serving as a senior fellow at the Allender Center. As we approach our final episodes on this season's theme of art and identity, I think you'll find Jay's perspective to be both rewarding and challenging. Patrons of the podcast can enjoy an additional interview segment with Jay at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. I'm your host, Stephen Roach, And this is the Makers and Mystics podcast, the podcast for the art-driven seekers of truth and lovers of life. Jay, thank you so much for joining me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. It's an honor to have you on the show. Stephen, it is an honor to be on your show. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. You know, we have featured your wife, Heather Stringer, on Makers and Mystics several times. She's also done several things in our creative collective, in our community. But I thought it might be a good idea to kind of balance out that masculine, feminine energy <laughs> going on and, uh, and see what might happen if we, uh, if we brought you in for a conversation. <laughs> That's hysterical. And I don't know where we're going to go, but that sounds intriguing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we'll see. Well, you know, one of the reasons that I was really interested in having you on the show is because of your work as a therapist, as well as your background at the Allender Center. We've also featured Dan Allender and Kathy Lorzell. Both have been on the podcast as well. And all throughout the season, we've talked about how different things, such as our place, informs our sense of identity. We've talked about even how the work of our hands, our vocation, our art, informs the way that we think about ourselves. We've talked, of course, a lot about how faith informs our sense of self. So maybe let's start with talking a bit about how you, as a mental health therapist, uh, an ordained minister, and a researcher, how do you think about the identity of a person? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, where I would start would kind of be my own, a bit of my own story. So, when people ask me, like, you know, how did I get into this work? One of the initial 
stories that often comes to mind is I was a pastor's kid growing up. And so my dad was a pastor of probably like a 250, 300 person Presbyterian church. And so, uh, you know, definitely back in the day and time where you just didn't go and see a therapist, that if you had a mental health problem, uh, difficulty in your marriage, uh, you know, problem with your children, you didn't seek out a licensed therapist, you sought out your pastor. So people would try and reach my dad at the office, and then they would uh, call our home phone. And my family didn't, like, almost never picked up the phone. We had caller ID, and so there were always these external demands coming in. And so we would always field calls, but we had this answering machine that was right next to our dinner table. And, you know, we were not allowed to watch most television shows like kind of Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith was the extent of what we could listen to. But the irony is that the material that would come in through that answering machine was like TV mature material, right? So um, I will remember like the, you know, an elder in my dad's church had had an affair and his wife just found out. And she called our home answering machine, left the message. And I could tell my parents going into a little bit of a crisis mode. So I could tell that my dad was going to have to meet with the session, his board of elders. Uh, But then I was also kind of very honed in on my mom's face during that time. And she was both like bereaved by her friend, but also just pissed off that she was going to lose my dad yet again. And so right in the middle of that, my dad leaves. And that is something of my role in the family is to kind of attend to some of the emotional health of siblings or of my mom, certainly my dad as well. And so very early on, that's my identity is my identity is in being very uh, observant, watchful, kind, asking the questions that no one else in the family is asking, uh, but particularly tending to my mom's anger with regard to losing her husband (laughs) to ministry. Um, And so very early on, I would say my identity was groomed uh, by both my parents to kind of listen to them, to be good. And so that has been just so much of the work that, you know, in many ways, I could never be doing this work if it were not for my childhood. But then it becomes the question of, you know, do I still stay in a very familiar post? Or am I betraying the particular role and identity in a way that is actually moving closer to more of my true self or more of a true identity. So um, when I'm thinking about working with any particular client, a colleague of mine by the name of Trapper uh, talks about how everybody has a provisional personality. And that's a lot of what we're working with when we meet people. It's, you know, do they, are they kind? Are they really nice? Do they ask a lot of questions, but then (laughs) they don't have much of a self without being nice, kind of the Enneagram twos? Or do they draw you in, but there's not much substance or soul to them? So all of us have developed a provisional personality to make our life work. And that's really what you're working with. So your provisional personality helps you survive the traumas, the difficulties, the roles that you played in your family. But that provisional personality is also what gets you into trouble in relationships. It causes disruption. And so the things that we lean on to survive inevitably create crises or just the deadness of a soul. And that's usually the work that I get to join is, okay, you found a way of life that has helped you, but now it impedes you. And let's, let's start there.
That's brilliant. You brought up this experience where your father was a vocational minister, and yet then here is the family dynamic, you know, happening, and, and these are intersecting and even conflicting. And it just makes me think that, you know, there are so many sides of a person's personality or so many sides of a person's self, like you're even talking about the provisional personality, you know, the way we show up in the world as a father, as a husband, as an artist, whatever these different roles are, a part of identity is rooted in that. And I'm going to speak personally for myself because I grew up not in a religious context, but I grew up where music and art and this sense of calling became everything to me early on. Music was my way to get out of the matrix. <laughs> my music was my way to avoid conforming to the social gatekeeper's demand on what they thought my identity was to be. Yes. But I realized, you know, coming into adulthood, becoming a husband, becoming a father, part of my identity, maybe it was a provisional thing as you were saying, I had to relearn and I had to reprioritize where sort of the core part of my being was rooted, you know? I'd love to hear you speak into that a little bit, even perhaps from your own experience, how mm -hmm. art and family or vocation and family and the sense of identity, how these things interact and conflict. Yeah, such a good question. So a couple, I mean, again, through the lens of stories, I can remember, you know, we can go into this if it's helpful, but like in middle school, my nickname was Donut. So uh, it went it, to school during the era of the Pillsbury Doughboy commercials. And so I had essentially brought a jelly donut to school my first day of seventh grade and jelly dripped down onto my white shirt. And middle school is a prototype of hell and those kids kind of <laughs> took full advantage of, of that um so i went through my own trauma abuse in middle school and in sensing this you know my dad i think was aware of that and kind of initiated you know basically let's go out to coffee let's get a bagel once a week type of thing and i think we did this two or three times and on the third bagel, um, when he was just saying, like, Jay, what's going on in your life? How's your heart? Um, just some of those questions. Uh, I didn't have a whole lot to say. And, you know, I think of like Brené Brown's latest book. She quotes a German philosopher who says, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. Oh, wow. And so I, I did not have you know, there was a lot of faith-based language, but not a lot of language to name trauma, heartache. And so, you know, when trauma happens to us, we have this area area of our brain called Broca's area. And that's the region of speech, expression, song, writing. And when you are in trauma, Broca's area goes offline, meaning you don't have access to words. And so, looking back, I have so much more compassion for that eighth grade boy. Like, I had no words to talk about that. And then particularly wow. in a family that did not have language for trauma or abuse. Uh, so I didn't have a whole lot to say. So my dad dropped me off at, you know, that classic kiss and ride uh, outside of some of the schools. And what my dad told me is he said this, Jay, if you were an elder in my church, I don't think I would continue to meet with you. And that stung. Uh, 
remember that just made like an indelible mark on me of, okay, here I am at school being bullied. And then at home, there is no refuge, there is no reprieve. Mm. But in that moment, I realized that if I want to have a connection with my dad, uh, it's going to come through having the spiritual, philosophical, and intellectual competence of an elder. And so I remember in like high school, I read a lot of C.S. Lewis by you know college. It was kind of like if John Calvin's going to write his Institutes by twenty one, at least the first draft, I'm going to have them read. And so I read all of Calvin, Luther, Edwards, um, kind of the deader the better, as they say in the theological world, and. As that personality structure of me developed, guess what happened to my relationship with my dad? Best years of my relationship with my dad were developing something that was close to my heart in terms of knowledge and ideas and thought. But when it was theological and when it was in the integration of theology and psychology, my dad and I had so much to talk to. So when I think about the work that I'm doing, you know, as a minister, but also as a far more a psychotherapist, I am doing that integration work between theology and psychology. So the provisional personality that I developed with my dad also launched my career, right? And that's the dilemma (laughs) is my dad helped define my mind. Like the eyes that I have to integrate the world, I would say are a gift from my dad, but also that sense of feeling trapped within a particular identity or feeling like I can have a lot of intellectual conversations with men, but in terms of like when I'm on guys trips or just seeing the way that certain guys will talk about 90s or like music when they start rapping a song that I had never heard of, (laughs) or if there's just like, I mean, I'll watch some of my friends just play And I'm like, where did they learn that? Like, I feel like I'm an alien looking into the scene, being like, where did they develop that? And they had friends growing up. Um, I didn't have a lot of friends growing up, Mm -hmm. but I did have intellectual conversations. So again, when I show up in some of my friends' worlds, uh, that will be some of the feedback that I receive is like, yeah, there, there's a intelligence to you, you're driven, there's a certain work that you have, but also like, <laughs> where are you? <laughs> um, are you going to show up and offer some of that to us as well, or kind of leave some of the intellectual stuff? So all that to say, my personality is a direct result of a lot of heartache and trauma and kind of learning how to connect with my mom and my dad. So who you see today <laughs> is from my parents. And that's also part of the the experience of being trapped and also needing to find more of true self and a sense of what is my identity if I'm not just kind of coming through for people and being smart or caring. Yes. Wow. You know, it's really interesting how much of our identity is shaped by our fathers, shaped by our parents, our mothers, mm-hmm. and usually it's either in reaction or in response. Maybe it's like, you know, you shared you wanted to connect with your dad and that kind of led to some theological research. And I thought something else you said was was very interesting as well is how you said that on one hand, this opened doors for you. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, it also made you feel stuck. Yes. And that's a very interesting thing, how the same stimulus 
can lead to both. It it led to a sense of of open doors, but also to a sense of feeling stuck. I'd love mm-hmm. to hear you speak into a bit more of how our experience with our parents, maybe even particularly with our fathers, how that shapes our identity mm-hmm. and how something can open doors and make us feel stuck at the same time. Yeah, I'd go a couple different places there. Um, I, I mean, I think all of us have some level of trauma in our life. So trauma... I think everybody's somewhat familiar with that definition of kind of the big T trauma, small T trauma, big T like Hurricane Katrina, 9-11, life-threatening events, uh, or small T, which would be like being bullied and maybe a divorce or just something that's not going to make the headlines. Uh, but the definition that uh, Dr. Gabor Mate uses is he says that trauma is not just something that happens to us. Trauma is what happens inside of us in the absence of an empathetic witness. Wow. Uh, so trauma is not necessarily what happens to us in those you know, awful moments, but it's far more, did you have an empathetic witness in the midst of that? That's so good. And it, I mean, here's the dilemma with most of our fathers. Some of our fathers kind of modeled a level of violence that when they would kind of get out of their window of tolerance, when they did not have compliance, uh, they weren't just an empathetic witness. They were actually the source of the small or big T trauma. So that is going to create some level of alienation and division from our dads. But there is also, you know, I think of like the person of Abraham throughout all the major faith traditions. Abraham is revered for being the father of our faith, uh, leaving everything to go into the land that God was calling him. But also, he's <laughs> he is an exceptional coward. He attempts to traffic his wife a couple times, uh, has <laughs> sex with a teenage concubine after you know doubting the promises of God. So there is something about Father Abraham that has such goodness to him that we need to be honest about. But what scripture always holds well and all psychology holds well is we can't just honor someone. We also have to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I think most of us have created a very big uh you know, distinction between honor and honesty, that we think that if I was actually honest (laughs) about what I've suffered, I could not honor someone. Mm. And if I'm trying to honor my dad or my mom, I could not actually be honest. And that is, that's what leads to splits and psychological disease and unhealth. So, all that to say, I think we have to also say that our fathers have done violence and harm but often that that theme of cowardliness of where was my dad when I needed him the most. Mm-hmm. So it, good parenting, this is way too simplistic, but Dan Siegel says, seen, safe, soothed, and secure. Well, a lot of it, we didn't have fathers that saw us and not just saw our physical needs, but saw into our emotional needs, our needs for expression. And so within that, that level of cowardice within our dads has also left us longing for an empathetic witness through what we've gone through. So uh, Richard Rohr says that the pain that we do not transform, we transmit. Mm. Always someone else has to suffer because we don't know how to. So I think a lot of us, particularly as men and women uh, that have father wounds, if we have not processed through some of the pain of not having an empathetic witness, uh, not having a source of delight, and maybe even a source of trauma, we've got to transmit that pain somewhere because we haven't transformed it. So that would be, you know, just a, a major 
category there. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other kind of category is whenever we are caught, this is something from the Jungian analyst, James Hollis. Uh, He says that whenever the human is kind of caught between uh, the soul's intention and the external demands, you're going to feel like a fraud. And I love that distinction that, you know, the external demands or the soul's intention. And so a lot of us, you know, have these particular personalities or we feel like we've got to provide for the family or I've got to make my life work. But then we drift off from some of what our soul is actually wanting to express. And that will also create some level of identity crisis because I'm fulfilling the external demands, but I'm neglecting some of the, you know, the soul that I have. Yes. I think that's something that the artist in particular faces a lot because, you know, it, when you look at like the vocation of a school teacher or you look at the vocation of a construction worker or you look at really anyone that works a nine to five job, most of the time those folks, they come home and their work is done. For many artists, they're working jobs and then coming home and getting to work on what really matters to them if they can. And a lot of times, I know I've experienced this over the years as well, there can be a split and there there does seem to be this realm of responsibility and this realm of what makes me come alive and how do we reconcile these things? And I know that that's been part of the work in my own life is, is how do we bring all the parts together? And I'd love to hear you speak into that a bit. Uh, just take me as kind of the archetype of the artist <laughs> in this moment. And I'll, I'll steal some free therapy from you on the podcast here today. But, you know, how do you approach that with the artistic temperament? How do we begin to reconcile some of the external responsibilities with also leaving space mm-hmm. for that heart, you know, that that sense of calling to find expression in our lives as well? Yeah, yeah. Not sure why this quote is coming to me, but Annie Dillard once said, um, I never knew I was a bell until the moment I was lifted up and struck. Wow. Um, and so when when she's talking about that, I think about art. So that, that sense of what are the moments in your life where you feel like it could be in singing, poetry, writing, baking, that you feel like something inside of you gets struck and you're like, wow, like I am a bell. So you have those bell-like moments, but those aren't always the things that put food on the table. And so I think just any time there is that dissonance between this is the thing that brings me life, but then this is the thing that I need to do to provide, that dissonance is so, so difficult to bear. So, you know, because of the kind of an artist's sensitivity to be able to observe the world and feel the world, they feel that dissonance between the soul's intention and the external demands all the more. So if you don't have the internal resources to deal with the dissonance between the now and the not yet, um, that's usually where a lot of depression will occur. So as human beings, we always have to choose between depression or anxiety. And you have to choose anxiety because it's the more life-giving option. So to to choose depression of like, I'm not going to let my soul express what it needs to express is to literally like depress our soul. So that sense of can you, as an artist, not 
just try and reduce your anxiety, but kind of develop a tolerance for the anxiety of what it means to create. Uh, I would say that's a very important category for some of the artists that I work with. And another major category would be think of it, it's kind of in the technical name is kind of reflected sense of self. And there's definitely some narcissism overlap within that. But when I was in high school, a narcissist was always someone that uh, they drove like a Ford Mustang Cobra saline edition. They had Tommy Hilfiger clothes or something like that. <laughs> and so there was a sense of like, we would say that they were full of themselves. But clinically speaking, narcissism is not being a full of oneself. It's actually having an absence of oneself. Mm. So if you don't know who you are, you're always looking back as a reflected sense of self with regard to you know, this is how many people liked my post or bought my art or kind of cared about what I created. And so, you know, I I wouldn't say it's just artists, but all of us have that sense of, we have a reflected sense of self, always looking for some level of validation there. So I think that's where you have to fall in love with the work Mm -hmm. to be able to kind of say, what are the things that I care about? What are those bell-like moments where I actually don't have a reflected sense of self here? Like this thing matters, the idea, the concept, being able to collaborate with dear friends to create something like a lot of hard work. And that's what I fell in love with was the pattern, or I fell in love with the collaboration, or I fell in love with the idea creation. And to be able to really allow that to be the source of validation, (laughs) that's a big challenge because other Otherwise, you're drawn towards, yeah, there's these unicorn artists that seem to make it and they get their opportunity. (laughs) Why can't I? And if you don't have much of a tolerance for distress or anxiety and you have a deeply reflected sense of self, that is going to crush you, which is going to lead to depression, which is going to lead to less creativity. Mm. And then it kind of creates this sense of dissonance, despair, depression, because something of your life force has gone missing. Wow. That's so good, my friend. That's so good. You know, I I know in my own life, I've really aimed to cultivate what I've called a holy indifference. That's kind of the mystic language for it. It's a holy indifference, which means that whether I'm praised or ignored or even despised, that I'm that I'm going to be okay, you know, that I'm going to continue the work that's important to me, that I do feel called to, because I think sometimes as artists, we can feel a pressure for our work to validate our existence. And I think that when we put this existential pressure on our art, that's far too much demand that that we require from our artistry. And, you know, I think that when we can set our art free, to put it in those terms, when we can set our art free from the need to validate us, I've just discovered that I am all the more creative that the things that come out of me when it's not working from a posture of need, but it's working from a posture of what I can offer, what I can give, you know, it, it kind of, it inverts that narrative, uh, so to speak. Yeah. Do you have an example of that or a, a season of your life or a piece of art? 
or like what's an example of that for you? Well, I think, you know, it, way back, you know, I, I like to talk about the reinvention of Stephen Roach. I've lived about 10,000 <laughs> lives at once sometimes. And, yeah. uh, it's kind of like Doctor Who, I guess, you know, the old Doctor Who when yeah. every season it was a new guy playing the main character. I've, I've kind of been that guy, I think. Mm. But, you know, there was there was one season where I was a worship leader and I was I was leading worship in a in a church context and there's this pressure you know to to bring this spiritual encounter every week you know and it's like it all the weight of heaven was on my shoulders yeah. to make sure everybody had an encounter with god and i realized that if the music didn't hit the mark or if i was just groggy one morning or whatever it was i would walk off stage and just feel like i could never show my face in public again mm-hmm. i didn't mm-hmm. i didn't perform you know, but then what is an interesting contrast to that is uh, there was also a season in my life when I toured professionally as a musician, and we would be performing in concert halls and theaters many times before an audience that didn't know how to spell the word spiritual. They were, you know, they were there to have their own version of ecstasy, right? <laughs> and yes. often in those encounters where I no longer had the pressure to perform. I had some of the deepest spiritual encounters mm. of my life, mm. and it just began to show me the the difference. Not that, and that's that's nothing to say against the church. That was my own personal experience that I had to work through. But you know, once I started to relieve myself of of the necessity to perform for my own validation, I found that my own creative work began to accelerate. Beautiful. And do you remember, I don't want to ask you too many questions and flip it, but like, <laughs> do you, like what, what was that distinction? Because they're both contexts for performance. Absolutely. So what, what made the difference in that second experience? Yeah, I think because in that context, I felt the freedom to sing or not sing or to follow the music wherever mm-hmm. wherever mm-hmm. that that creativity wanted to go. There wasn't uh, sure. There there's definitely a, a performance element there as well. Yeah. But there wasn't this overarching pressure for my music to accomplish something bound to such a specific expectation. Does that make sense? Yeah it, yeah, it was it was more like I just had the freedom. Yeah, and I think that's so central. I mean, I'm so glad you're bringing that up because it's. I mean, I think the freedom to betray mm. what you need to betray is so. Because if your loyalty is to a church system, a family system, loyalty will always impede creativity and self-expression. Wow. And so I, I think that's similar mm-hmm. to what. I, I would say as well is like whenever I feel this kind of sense of I know what is expected of me with my mom or my dad or whatever system uh, yeah. projection that I'm dealing with, there is this sense of I know how to come through. Mm. But I think it's in the sense of being able to betray mm-hmm. that I find not in a way that I want to degrade or to humiliate, but a sense of like I need to. I need to disappoint someone in order to move this thing along. So like there's a philosopher by the name of Deleuze who who talked about how Jesus had to learn how to be bilingual within a single language system. So he had to know the language of Judaism to say, you've heard it said this, but I'm telling you this. And so it's really interesting take that he walks further into where you have to know the language 
but then you also have to disappoint the language if you're going to develop a self, if you're going to move into creativity. So betrayal is such a gift. <laughs> wow. Lean into that with me a little bit more, man, because those are very strong words. That's a very strong term. I love what you said. Loyalty can impede creativity. Mm-hmm. Talk to me more about this positive use of the word betrayal. Yeah. yeah, I'd love to hear more on this. So in my own work, like I, I wrote a book titled Unwanted. And it was basically a research study into 4,000 men and women to really get a sense of what what's driving people to use porn, to have affairs. So just in a lot of the Christian framework that I'm in, it's a lot of lust management, like bounce your eyes, you know, get some internet monitoring, uh, get into accountability. But there is no curiosity at all with regard to why am I drawn to this particular person or archetype or fantasy. Uh, so I developed just a lot of creates, like just, I was really curious about why did some of my clients seek out some porn search terms and then the others would seek out other ones or why did some people have affairs here, but not at other points in their life. So just really curious. And so in a way I had to betray some of evangelicalism that every man's battle was essentially bounce your eyes. And then if you are married to a man struggling with porn, you need to present your body as a merciful vial of methadone to him. (laughs) That's like verbatim in some of those books. So in a way I had to betray the the known evangelical world with regard to how do they how do they work through sexual difficulties yeah. in order to kind of move something along but then the very notion that there is meaning inside of some of these unwanted behaviors was kind of a betrayal of you know more of a progressive system that just kind of made shame and stigma so i would say like i had i felt like when I was writing that book, I had to betray evangelicalism and progressivism. But now, as I'm researching on my next book on desire, there is a certain kind of, you know, I need to be, I need to write towards a Christian audience. And so, you know, some of the things that my publishers and agent have been working through is how do we get Jay out of the Christian bedroom <laughs> uh, has been part. <laughs> so, in a way, I need to betray kind of that role and that identity that I've been built because, Yes, I cared about that work immensely, but it's, you know, my middle school self would be horrified that I'm working with sexual problems (laughs) and talking about them on a consistent basis. So, even my ability to betray something that has worked well for me and I felt like was a betrayal at the time, I think there's something, if I I remain loyal to a system, if I remain loyal to a former version of myself— something in my soul gets compromised in the process. So that's what I heard when you were talking about the distinction between the worship stage and just the the ability to like be free to follow what you felt like you needed to follow where that would be betrayal in in a worship setting. Right. It's like a Petri dish for heresy right there. (laughs) (laughs) And it was in some ways. (laughs) Yeah. As it it should be. Yes. Well, you know, you've got me thinking, when we feel like we have to function according to loyalty to a particular system and how that can impede creativity and how that can stifle things, it, it made me think, as we mentioned compartmentalization earlier, mm-hmm. and I think some of that 
is at the root of compartmentalization. And again, just thinking of my own life, I know that you know, whenever we we feel that we have to to function to a previous version of ourselves, or we have mm-hmm. to function, like you said again, just that loyalty to some kind of system. I think, and you you as the therapist can can speak into this for me, but it it seems like that leads to a bit of soul fracture. That seems to, like, I have to be this person here. Mm -hmm. I have to be this person here. I can't be this person here, but I can be this person here. And so then you've got this split happening inside of your sense of identity, inside of yourself. And, you know, I know for me, that's some of what happened in my own life. And music and art became a place of safety. It became a place of solace. It became a, a, a place where I could go. But then the shadow side of that is that it also became a place of escape for me. And then it was mm-hmm. also mixed in with some narcotics and, 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 you know, seeking all kinds of experiences outside in ways that weren't healthy. Yes. Yeah. I, I, since you have interviewed and know my wife, Heather, you know, she had a lot of her own difficult moments growing up as well. And yet, like when I hear a lot of her childhood stories, um, she just showed me last night, uh, her mom had just sent a box from her childhood. And there's something like during sixth grade, when she was in some funk, she wrote something with regard to like, death dying in the art of courage or something as like an 11 year old. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) In the moment, I'm like both intrigued by that, but also like, I'm like, I was eating little Debbie oatmeal (laughs) cream pies to process (laughs) my trauma. So there, there's something of that compartmentalizing where, you know, whenever there is something that is too much for the soul to bear, some level of dissociation or compartmentalization is needed. So Mm -hmm. compartmentalization is is such a gift uh, very early on Mm. um, to be able to kind of say, this is too psychologically overwhelming for me to know how to process. So I need to be able to disassociate from this a little bit. Um, But the artist kind of takes some of that tension, that difficulty, and kind of creates art and expression out of it. I, I did not learn how to do that during middle school. I wish I did. So for me, my first impulse is always towards like food and dissociation because that was, you know, brownies, ice cream, just a lot of kind of certain foods that aren't bad foods. They're, they're just what I use to be able to process <laughs> some of that trauma. So that would help me compartmentalize, okay, that's just happening at Franklin Middle School, but then this is home and then this is youth group life. And so part of the work of integration then is to be able to kind of say, no, all of these parts and all of these stories belong. But that's where, you know, the the issue of identity and provisional personalities comes in of like, well, I can't tell the truth about that over here. And I don't know what to deal with in there. So I know another guest that you told me had on was Dan Allender. And I remember him talking before I had committed to going to his school, but he was like teaching on Psalm 88. And it essentially says like, it ends with darkness is a closer friend than you, oh God. (laughs) And then he went off (laughs) into how much better of a friend darkness is than God. And again, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. I had never heard someone preach like that in my life. And that saved my life, but far more it gave me life because it wasn't about compartmentalization, but it was like, I could bring the trauma 
the heartache, the disillusionment, the dissociation, the food, the porn. Like I could bring everything of my struggles and kind of bring it into integration to be able to understand what the symptoms of my life were saying. But in so yeah. many structures, the symptoms and the compartmentalization just gets hidden. And this is kind of uh, some of the work of Jacques Lacan, a famous uh, analyst. Oh, yeah. Peter Rollins talks about him a lot. Yes. yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So big fan of Lacan too, but I've heard Rollins talk about this as well. But for Lacan, every person that you meet has a symptom. And I don't know French, so I'm going to butcher this a little bit. For But for Lacan, the symptom, uh, he does this word, word play between symptom, which is symptom, and saint-home. Saint-home means holy man. And so for Lacan, every symptom of someone's life is the holy prophet or the holy man that's trying to say the thing that cannot be said. And that's the gift of our symptoms, our narcotic use, our you know sexual difficulties, our depression, our anxiety, is the symptoms of our life are telling the truth about where we have been, and they will not allow our life to remain compartmentalized. And so, I mean, it's a, it's a horrifying but also grace-filled moment to allow what is hidden and compartmentalized to come into light, um, because the, the symptoms of our life are often far more honest. They are the truth-tellers, because we have learned in a particular system, a family, a church, to remain quiet, and our symptoms don't remain quiet. They are the holy man that are speaking. And so I just that's where I just say we have so much to learn from our symptoms and from the things that we compartmentalize, but we have to learn how to integrate all of the symptoms and difficulties of our life. You brought up your book that you're writing, which is about desire. And to contextualize that to our conversation on art and identity, desire is such a central part of how we define ourselves, of how we you know, think of ourselves. Our desires, in many ways, drive the way that we approach life and the way that we think about ourselves. I'd love to hear about your book on desire and how you would see desire as it relates to identity. How does mm-hmm. how does desire mm-hmm. inform our sense of self? And is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Yeah, I'm <laughs> or both. I, I'm writing to discover that and researching to discover yes. that. So part of it, I'll give some of the framework of why this book. So it, you know. It, I'll work with clients who will come in to say, like, I just read Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score. This is what's wrong with me. Trauma. I have unaddressed trauma. That's the problem. And then you read other people that read, like, you know, Atomic Habits and from James Clear, and they're like, this is it. I don't have, you know, I have a lot of goals, but I don't have a system to accomplish these goals. Or people will bring in, like, John and Julie Gottman, who are marriage therapists, and just say, like, this is what our, my marriage needs in the midst of this. Or you'll have, you know, just more more of us, you know, soul craft, uh, Bill Plotkin's work or kind of psychedelic journeys. And so you have these people that are like, this is my thing. Uh, and yet, like, it helps liberate them and bring some language, but it also begins to impede them. 
And so I think the lack of integration between a lot of the fields of psychology are central to why we are struggling uh, across, you know, whether it's desire for uh, our partner, desire for uh, sexual desire, desire for our career and meaning and finding life. And so a lot of this book is trying to take a very holistic understanding of desire, like how did, how did that form when you were a child? But then what are some of the roles and identities that you learned how to play? So all that to say, I think our, our desires have been hijacked. <laughs> by, you know, the families that we grew up in uh, wanted to use some of our best stuff for their gain. And yet when we began to disappoint them, they made us pay or they're, you know, just the way that capitalism, patriarchy kind of grooms us to have a particular desire. And uh, then that, you know, leads to like more of a shallow sense of self or a more entitled sense of self. So I want to look at how do sexual and relational and vocational desire problems, how are they something of a roadmap to healing and growth for us rather than this thing that I'm just constantly trying to, you know, read the next great book on, um, but I think they aren't a la carte menu options. They are one thing with like five parts that we need to understand our story. We need to develop a sense of self. We need to learn how to you know, do relationships in a healthy way. And we need to understand kind of what, me- what brings pleasure, life, and meaning to us. That's beautiful. Well, man, as we close up here, Jay, and this has been absolutely incredible. This has been really life-giving for me. So thank you for sharing your heart and your wisdom. I just have one final question I want to ask you. And, you know, so many people in recent years and in this generation have gone through a lot of traumatic experiences or damaging experiences uh, within the faith community. And I would say, you know, especially artists, because there's not always a place. If you're not a worship leader, like we talked about earlier, the church often doesn't know what to do with you. Some people, unfortunately, they will deconstruct completely out of any faith mm-hmm. altogether. You know, they, they just associate it with the trauma and leave it behind. Other people may cope and just get by. But my heart is for those artists to thrive in both a faith context and an artistic context. And I think that's why I'm drawn to the mystics, because the mystics seem to have a passport somehow. You know, they they bypass a lot of dogma, and they just go straight for that union. They go straight Mm. for the presence. They go straight for that desert experience, you know, apart from a lot of the the other things. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that community is not important. Yes, it's, it's, it's very important. But my question for you here is... As a therapist, or even just from your own heart, what kind of, I don't know if advice is the right word, but what kind of way forward do you feel like Mm -hmm. we can find to work through some of the traumatic things that we maybe experience uh, in a faith context while still preserving that pure, authentic, whether you would uh, love for Jesus or whether that pure, authentic sense of spirituality, like how, what would you say to that? Yeah. So a couple ideas to begin this would be uh, Dan Siegel, kind of one of the leading neuroscientists in the world, parenting expert, says it like this. He says that the strongest systems in the world are those that are differentiated and linked. I'll come back to that. Or Gabor Mate, another trauma therapist, says that 
the human soul is kind of always trying to negotiate authenticity and belonging. Mm-hmm. So they're they're riffing off very similar su- contexts there. So for Siegel, like I always think about it in terms of like an airplane. So an airplane is full of differentiated parts, wings, fuselage, um, you know, cockpit, control panel. But the the magic of that is not just the integration. It's not just the differentiation of the parts. It's when they integrate for the magic of flight. And when I'm thinking about particular people within faith contexts, a lot of times there is this pressure, as you said, to kind of like put the airplane into flight. And we don't care who you are. When I, I went to a Southern Baptist high school and the best ability was availability. So they didn't care about differentiation as long as you were just like playing a particular part. So there's a lot there within belonging, but the artist is always kind of saying there's something that's not authentic with regard to greed. There's something that's not authentic with regard to race. There's something that's not authentic with regard to expression, right? So like the Thomas Kincaid's of the world that are creating, you know, the painter of light. And yet, you know, in his arrests for, you know, peeing in public, like he was so much more honest in his arrests than he was in a way in his art. So that's, that's part of the challenge is how do I bring authenticity while also trying to find belonging. And that's really, really difficult to be able to walk that razor's edge. And the prophets don't do it great, but I think they provide the best standpoint of, you know, like Jeremiah would say, it would have been better for me to have been aborted in my mother's womb than to have to live another day with this message. And then he goes on to say, you know, nevertheless, there's a fire in my soul that I have to speak. And that's the constant sense of, you know, I want to belong, but again, Again, betrayal is such a gift if you're moving people back to greater levels of authenticity. So, you know, the authentic self, the gift that you develop is not just for your own self-care. It's not just for your own self-development. The gift that you develop, your boon, Joseph Campbell would say, is like what is brought back to the community. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's what we have to do as artists is we have to be able to say, Like, first I belong, but then I need to leave belonging. I need to be in exile. I need to betray. And then I need to develop, like, what is the gospel? What is beauty? What is truth? And I need to have most of my loyalty be to the God of the universe, be to this creative expression. And that's going to require some disruption to my belonging. But I am practicing that gift in a way that I eventually intend to bring that back to the community to integrate and to bring goodness so it differentiation and linkage you know betrayal loyalty and the gift the boon i think there, there's i don't know how it's all done but i think all those elements have to be in play wonderful jay thank you so much for spending this time with me on the makers and mystics podcast this has been an absolutely phenomenal conversation steven thank you for having me really enjoyed it as well And thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Be sure to give us a follow on Instagram at Makers and Mystics and see the show notes of this episode for links to today's guest. Music for this episode was provided by Somewhere at Sea. And this episode was produced by me, Stephen Roach. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.